Well, hello, and welcome back to Baby Sally Talks. Oh, dear. It's a beautiful day where I am right now in uh, Thompson Memorial Park. I've got, I'm sitting on a bench, and I have this lovely view of the whole park before me. The trees are still without leaves, but it's definitely spring, and the sun is shining. It's uh, towards the end of April now, 2015. And, oh, I'm sitting here ready to get started on this uh, next episode. And I'm not quite sure where it's going to go. You could probably tell from the previous episode, if you listened, uh, number four, uh, My Sunday Pants was called, that I'm struggling a little bit with the nature and direction of this podcast. It seems... In the beginning, I wanted it to be more about a spiritual journey, and did that tie in with me joining a church or not? And I, I'm moving away from that towards more of a whole person, of which the spiritual, spiritual element is one part, but it's not everything. And um, I think it's I'm just going to have to let it unfold as it does, using the techniques I learned on my... Uh, previous Dixon Jane's podcast. Just let it happen and uh, see where that gets you. Really what I want is, more than anything, is what I call, what we in the amateur podcaster field call authenticity. Speaking with your real voice and um, going from there, being who you are. So the person who I am is a person who's um, not only a pack rat, but a lover of books uh, I don't allow myself enough time to read these days. I'm, I sit down in front of our giant TV screen with a recliner and a remote control in my hand, and I jump between three stations at once. And what's even worse is I have my iPad on my lap at the same time. And so uh, I clearly lack focus. And I wish I was much better at just sitting down in a quiet place with a book and reading. So I want to mention... Uh, what the books are that I'm carrying. One, of course, is Greta Vosper's Amen. I'm still reading that. I'm enjoying... She has a bit of a wicked sense of humor. It's subtle, but it's there. Uh, And I'm finding it actually a a much better read than I thought it would be. Um, With that, I was in my basement and dug up my original university copy of... uh, Carl Rogers on Becoming a Person. I mentioned this book a lot, again, in my previous podcast. It's um, it's the one I got when I was a psychology student at uh, Sir George Williams in Montreal. The book is uh, full of my original blue highlighter comments, and I can sort of pick it at random and think, wow. God, I love that book, and I love that man. Uh, he is very much, when I when I took counseling courses um, at Centennial College, I always referred, if I could, in any of my assignments to Carl Rogers, the founder of client-centered therapy, a great humanist, uh, and I think just an absolutely wonderful man. Uh, for example, it is that the individual seems to become more content to be a process rather than a product. 
And I guess that really reflects to the nature of podcasting. It is about the process. It's not about the end product, the thing you are listening to now. It's about the actual act of doing and letting things just sort of tumble out as they may. Um, Another line, and again, this is randomly. I've just opened the book with no particular reason. It means that a person is a fluid process, not a fixed or static entity. A flowing river of change, not a block of solid material. A continually changing constellation of potentialities, not a fixed quantity of traits. And I just love that, and it just matches so exactly with with what I believe. Uh, we are, you know, we are this thing. We, we try to pinpoint ourselves. I, I'm guilty of that all the time, of who am I, as if it's something fixed. And it isn't that way at all. We're redefined uh, through all our actions and in everything that we do. So I'm going to put that book aside for now. I would love I could spend the entire podcast just talking about Carl Rogers and pulling out pieces of... Um, of this book ah, let, let me read one more before I put it away I, I, I have to it's like a pledge of allegiance to this man uh, I guess he's talking about the process of a good life is not, I am convinced a life for the faint hearted it involves the stretching and growing of becoming more and more of one's potentialities it involves the courage to be It means launching oneself fully into the stream of life. Yet the deeply exciting thing about human beings is that when the individual is inwardly free, he chooses as the good life this process of becoming. That's lovely. And and again, it's it's all about process. It's not reaching this fixed state. And, And sometimes... I know in the past I used to think I want to arrive at a certain point and be there, you know, almost as if having this knowledge, this understanding, this higher awareness. But it's not really about that. It's about the continual challenges we face and um, the opportunities that are presented to us. All right, two more books in my bag. And this, by the way, it's just a prelude to whatever this podcast episode will turn out to be. Uh, The other book is The Dharma Bums by Jack Kerouac. And I have several copies. And anytime I go into a used bookstore, if there's anything by Kerouac, I just buy them. This is a really nice copy, a Viking Press one from... uh, When would this have been? They give the inside list of all the books. I, I just love the old books. Copyright 1958, Viking Compass Edition 1971. So it's old and it's in very good condition. And the Dharma Bums, again, it would fit actually quite nicely with what I was reading about Carl Rogers. It was Kerouac's journey to uh, to gain some enlightenment. Uh, a lot of the book is about Gary Snyder, who is a real-life figure and still alive today. A poet, a writer, um, a very uh, the man who basically went to Japan early, I guess in the 50s, and brought back a lot of knowledge and understanding that he shared with the other beats, the beat writers of the time, Ginsburg and Kerouac. 
Um, it's a great book if you haven't read Jack Kerouac. Well, I don't know who you are if you haven't or what age you are. I have no idea who my listeners are, and I think that's one of the problems that I'm facing. I'm not quite sure who I am who I am addressing. So that goes back in the bag. I won't. Although I could. I, should I read just a random quote? It'd be, I guess, almost uh, not very good if I didn't don't want to read conversations. I don't have these things marked. Again, I think that's part of the process. I suppose if I was planning and preparing, I would um, go through the book, isolate a piece of text. I have nothing highlighted in this one. It's just uh, it's just whatever I'm going to open up and find here. Kerouac is in um, California at that time. Um uh, the boy, let's see, okay. Oh, we, the, bo- the boys was glad and rested up for more, and Jack cooked mush in honor of the door, I recited. What's that? That's a poem I wrote. The boys was sitting in a grove of trees, listening to Buddy explain the keys. Boy, says he, the Dharma's a door. Let's see. Boys, I say the keys, cause there's lots of keys, but only one door, one hive for the bees. So listen to me. And I'll try to tell you all, as I heard it long ago in the Pure Land Hall, for you good boys with wine-soaked teeth that can't understand these words on a heath, I'll make it simpler, like a bottle of wine and a good wood fire under stars divine. Now listen to me. And when you have learned the Dharma of the Buddhas of old and yearned to sit down with the truth under a lonesome tree in Yuma, Arizona, or anywhere you be, don't thank me for telling what was told me. This is a wheel I'm a-turning. This is the reason I be. Mind is the maker for no reason at all. For all this creation created to fall. Ah, but that's too pessimistic. Like dream gucky, says Alva. Though the rhymes is pure like Melville. And I'll just stop there. It's, it's just <laughs> it was a random passage of uh, Kerouac. Uh, being Kerouac. Yeah, it's very free-flowing and uh, very wonderful and certainly influenced me in my earlier years and uh, still does today. Now, the other book that I've got, I just bought yesterday in Value Village. <laughs> it is called Westward to the Americas. And this fits a little in with the Dixon Jane's readers. It's of that time. Uh, this, I'm thrilled to see is a hardcover first edition, February 1954, and basically it's the history of uh, North America. The man writes a nice foreword. Um, it's dedicated to his da- daughter, Pamela, who was a grade 6 student, and in the foreword he says, by the time the pupil reaches grade 6, so again, this is Canadian high schools, it is assumed that his own part of the world has become of special interest to him. I don't know if that's true, but That's what he's assuming. When he has a general view of explorers and others unfolding the map of the world, he will study in great detail the New World, with special emphasis on Canada. Westward to the Americas attempts to correlate history with geography, and thus give the child an understanding of the relationship between the history of a country and its geographical nature. The text is written at the grade 6 level in the hope that the pupils will be able to read and enjoy it. Well, I've got to tell you, as a 
67-year-old, I enjoy reading at the level of a grade 6 student. And uh, if I could turn back time and start all over, oh my goodness, I would take school oh so much more seriously. But anyway, it's I, I love these books. It's just a, an easy way to catch up on things maybe you've forgotten. And, uh, it, of course, there's always going to be Cortez conquering Mexico, Pizarro conquers Peru, and so on. But what I particularly like is the early explorers. Here's Radisson Grossilier, also known as radishes and gooseberries when they're in England. Uh, La Salle, Samuel de Champlain, Jacques Cartier, all these names that I try and teach my students when they visit from Japan during the summer. Uh, Raleigh, and then uh, Alexander Henry, fur trader, Samuel Hearn, uh, David Thompson, map, make, map maker, and Fraser Explorers west of the Rockies. All of this I just find so interesting, uh, Canadian history. So that's in my little bag that I'm carrying around with me. And there is one more thing in the bag, the thing we're going to talk about today. The theme, if we have any time left, of this podcast. I'm reaching in for it now, and that is my baseball glove. I mentioned last time I'd be talking about this. I'm putting it on my hand now. It still fits. I will post a picture for this episode of the baseball glove. It was made in Japan. I think that's pretty exciting. And I'm guessing I probably got this for a birthday. I'm thinking maybe... 1959 or 1960, possibly 59, at the hardware in Lachine, there was an area called Dixie. There's a little strip mall, a drugstore where we bought the ingredients to make gunpowder, uh, a bank and Miss Dixie restaurant. There was a toy store, Fernley's, and one end was the hardware store. And they would sell bicycles and the things that... You know, in those days, you would walk to. You didn't go to a Walmart. You went to the local store, and you talked to the man, and you looked through the gloves. And uh, this one is called League Player Made in Japan. Now, on the front, which I'm particularly proud of, I burned in my name, Ken Bowl. And I did that with a magnifying glass, and I did it. (laughs) More than I played baseball... Uh, this was far more important. Sitting in a driveway or backyard with a magnifying glass to uh, heat up the leather through the rays of the sun and burn your name in. And I burned it perfectly. <laughs> I'm so proud of that. <laughs> Prouder than any achievements I made in baseball because I didn't make any achievements in baseball. My family was not a sports family, and I regret to say that I did not bring my own children up with sports, although I did try to take them swimming. I did try to get them into soccer. I did have a badminton set and a croquet set in the backyard, which maybe doesn't quite qualify as sports, but... Nobody in my family, neither my parents nor my brother and sister, none of us were involved in sports in any significant way. Uh, Sadly, I was one of those people, oh my God, all right, you guys get bowl. The last pick on any team. The person in, uh, in gym who nobody wanted, who couldn't do anything, who was just plain useless. By the time I got to high school, I was skipping gym whenever I could. Uh, just 
duking class, I think they called it. Um, because it was too embarrassing, it was too humiliating. It was horrible. And it really, to this day, I, I can say honestly, shaped my char- character or was something missing from my person. Perhaps one of the things that made me insecure, lacking confidence, uh, that I'm still struggling with today. Sports is when, if you're good, wow, everybody loves you. You're a hero. Uh, and, it, and it takes courage to, to join a team to try. Once, once in my life, uh, friends convinced me to just sign up for the hockey team. And I put on a pair of skates and a couple of knee pads. I couldn't skate. I hadn't had any practice. I didn't know what I was doing. But somehow my father took me to the Lachine Arena. And I got out on the ice. I didn't know what to do. Uh, the team was supposed to line up and take shots at the goalie just to practice, to show the coach what you're doing. This is the first practice. It wasn't a game. Uh, I was right away bowl your defense, you know. That would be clear. And, gosh, was it, was, did I even play one game? I don't know. I stood there. Somebody took a shot, and I just got in front of it and took the shot right into the knee pads because I thought, well, I'm defense. I'm supposed to stop the shots. And, of course, it was yelled at. No, not now. You know, this is not what we're doing. And, uh, anyway, my parents, I think, were quite concerned. And when I got home... My mother was concerned, asked my father, well, how did he do? Because they must have thought, how was our son even going to get out in the ice and play with these other boys who've probably been playing for years? He doesn't know the rules. We don't know if he can stand up on the ice. And my father smiled and said, oh, he was a real little rocket Richard. And he didn't mean that in a mean way. He just meant to say, don't worry about it. You know, he'll be fine. Can you Shut up! No, stay! And I felt, I guess, really embarrassed. I think that was the last of it. I don't think I ever went back. Um, that, that, was, that was the end of my hockey career, okay? That wasn't going to work. I went and watched the baseball once and realized, no, I don't know the positions. I don't know how to play baseball. I guess I won't do that either. How does this connect with the glove? Well, the glove was something. The good part about it, all right, I didn't get into any teams. I wasn't one of those players. And therefore, by the time I got to high school, I I didn't have the identity of, of somebody who's a team player, one of the guys, one of the boys. I was just going to be some nerd. And on top of that, I wasn't all that smart, so I couldn't be one of the brains and have that to fall back on. I just had to be uh, what I turned into. It was a class clown and a bit of an idiot at that. But there were times on the weekend when I could get together with a couple of friends, and this was getting right into high school and even after high school, probably even by university days, and you'd go out and you'd play 21. You'd find an empty schoolyard because there were plenty of them around. I can remember in particular, this is still in Lachine, going to Meadowbrook Schoolyard. They had a baseball field, and you played 21. One guy was at the bats. He'd throw. You'd have to throw the ball up in the air and whack it as hard as you could. And of course, that's what you want to do all day if you are good enough. And the other two or three guys, your friends, would be out in the field. And if you caught a pop fly, 
you got seven points. The job was to get 21, and then you got the turn at bats. If you got a one bouncer, you got five points. If it was a grounder, you stopped before anybody else, you'd get three points. And I think they gave you a point if it went right out in the field, nobody got it, and you had to go and fetch it, which was often my my job. I still had fun doing that, and the only reason was because I'd be doing it with friends who were forgiving and didn't care that every time you threw the ball up in the air to swing at it, you'd miss, and they'd be waiting a long time for a pop fly from you. But you did it anyway. Now, for some reason, I've saved this glove that it would have had. As I say, I would have been 11 years old, maybe. And I still have it. I still love the looks of it. <laughs> I thought I was going to have more of a story to go with it. And, and um, I, maybe that wasn't very much. Um, it was really to say that when you're not good at something, you're not good at sports, you pay a price. You you don't get the confidence. You don't get the girls. You don't get the popularity. And it's a really shitty feeling, I'll put it that way, to be last picked for anything. Um, I, I have two other crazy sports-related stories. The, the, one of the meanest boys in our school, I can say that because he didn't like me and I didn't like him. He was big, he was strong, he was smart. Um, I won't give his name here. Uh, We played at, uh, I guess, during lunchtime at Meadowbrook at the school. And you'd rotate. There'd be another game. We'd just rotate through all the positions, right? After as soon as somebody was out, everybody would move forward one position. Eventually, you get to be pitcher and then batter. I was pitcher, and he hit a line drive straight to me. Hit it with all his might, a big softball. I may have caught it in a very sensitive area, um, but I caught it. And I was okay. And I only remember it because everybody else was going, oh, my God, he's going to be hurt. Uh, but I wasn't. <laughs> Here's another little point. In my entire life of growing up, I never had what is called a jock, a... Um, a cup protecting your sensitive parts. And it's like that was something missing from my life. Well, everybody has one of those. I mean, you're going to be playing sports, baseball, you can get hurt. Well, <laughs> I was never playing sports at, at such a level. And again, it, it's as if it's a, it's a part of you missing that's never growing up. I think this is what drove me to therapy in the first place. See, that wasn't really part of my life. An athletic protector. I think they're called. Um, But those are the things, I mean, the fact that I mentioned it was my mother who took me down to the Dixie Hardware to buy the baseball glove. My father wasn't part of that. He wasn't one who was pitching a ball to me and uh, saying, come on, let's go. And I feel very, very badly that in return, I was not the father pitching the ball to my sons and and saying, come on, let's go. We got to play. We got a game here. In fact, the one game my son had to play with scouts was a father-son baseball game. And to my shame, and it's something my my eldest son hasn't forgotten and I will never forget, when all the other fathers were getting in there and playing, fathers who were younger than me, I'll say, and fathers who probably grew up playing sports at that very school, Cedar Bray, 
junior public school, I walked away. I left the field. I could not stand the embarrassment of being a father who couldn't catch a ball or hit the ball or somehow participating. And I left my son there. And he brought it up over a beer in Vancouver one time. Dad, do you remember? And how embarrassing that was for him. And and to my everlasting shame, I'm confessing it here because that's the kind of thing I want to do on this podcast. But I feel very, very badly that I still hadn't been able to deal with the issue of not being good at sports, of maybe the humiliation. Maybe it all came back to me when I watched the other fathers and kids. Maybe I just relive that. That's not an excuse. I should have been there. And instead, our house was behind the school. I slinked off in shame. And uh, to my son, I apologize. I am so sorry. That's a pretty sad note to end on. But um, maybe that is the time to stop. Maybe it is all about feelings and caring and how, how important a part sports should be and maybe we want to live in the world I mean I'm not of the school that says every kid deserves a trophy for trying and everybody's a winner and there shouldn't keep scores I think that's ridiculous it's a reality some kids can draw some can't some kids can hit a ball some can't let's just deal with it it's reality don't give me any of this no we're going to play non-competitive sports it is competitive and life is competitive and it's a reality and I found other ways to compete I've in, in some ways, I can probably say truthfully that it, my weakness in that area made me stronger in other areas. And I've competed in life, and I've done things that take, take courage. And I think I've made up for a lot of my shortcomings. And I hope, I think... My sons will do the same if they haven't already. Ah, This feels very odd. I still have the glove on my hand. I guess I was looking for it to speak to me. It's just one of those things that sits in my basement bar with a story of its own. I don't know if I told a very good story with it, but that is the story that came out. Uh, I can still remember the first time I caught a pop fly on the end of my thumb and absolutely never recovered. And to this day, I can feel that thumb is still sensitive. I'm feeling it now as it sits in the glove, that horrible feeling of, I got it, I got it, I got it. And it comes down and it hits your thumb the wrong way and your thumb twists or bends or something happens and it hurts. And it's going to hurt forever every time a ball lands in that glove. Is there an ending? It says cross-country league player. Well, I guess not. I guess I will end there. Maybe you can find a better closure to this than I can. I still feel... Strangely enough, very, very happy to have this glove. I, I, I always loved it. I love that it's brown leather. I love its color. I love its shape. I love the way it's made. I still loved my glove. 
<laughs> uh, even though, I guess it, it belonged to me. It was mine. And I feel a connection to it now. It's funny. I've gone on long enough that I, I can actually feel it talking back to me. It's mine. And we're all unique and we're all special and nobody else has a glove like this. Certainly, you'd never mistake this one. It's got my name burned right into it. Yeah, it's kind of special. Like me. <laughs> so, listeners, we'll end there. Sorry if I've gone on a little longer, but I uh, I had to get to a, a happy place. And I'm... Uh, I'm there now. I'm there now as I stare deep into the pocket. You had to have a good pocket <laughs> of your glove. Very often, more often than not, the balls would land in this glove and just fly out on their own. They never quite... <laughs> it never quite seemed to hold them. It seemed to, when I squeezed the glove to uh, hold the ball, it seemed to maybe pop it right out just as quickly as it landed in there, if it did. But uh, so be it. All right. I never had another one since. It's the the one and only baseball glove I ever had. And here we are. I still have it. All right. That's the end of this podcast. Ah, Talk to you again uh, next time. Bye for now.